You're listening to Cultivation Elevated, hosted by Michael Williamson, where we discuss vertical farming and the future of cannabis and food production. You'll be learning key insights for vertical farming success from leading industry operators, growers, and executives. If you're a grower or owner looking to optimize your existing or new indoor cultivation facility, or anyone looking to cultivate more and less space, we've got you covered. Cultivation Elevated, sponsored by Pip Horticulture. Hello and welcome to another episode of Cultivation Elevated, sponsored by Pip Horticulture, where we discuss all things vertical farming and operations for cannabis and food crops. My name is Michael Williamson and I'm here in Cambridge, Maryland at the premier facility, Colta. And I'm joined today by Jay Bouton, Senior Director of Colta. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. To get started a little bit, can you kind of tell me a little bit about the name Colta and kind of how that came to be? Yeah, so Colta, you know, kind of has a multi-headed meaning, um, but really the main part that we were focusing on was culture um, and bringing the cannabis culture and keeping the cannabis culture in the forefront of pretty much everything that we do as a company. And the cannabis culture, you know, it really stems a lot from the West Coast and even in some parts of Colorado and uh, in some of those earlier states. And so it seems like that's a pretty critical thing and not even not exactly an easy thing to bring into an East Coast kind of new state with less of a history with legal cannabis. Yeah, out West, it's much more open and, and easygoing as far as cannabis goes. To, so to come out here where people have been much tighter to the chest with, you know, their past cannabis consumption, it's a little more difficult to kind of make people realize that this is a, a legal industry that, you know, we're able to flourish in and you don't have to be ashamed of it or hide behind a wall uh, anymore that, you know, we're able to really take it and run. Yeah, it's interesting when you get on a plane and head west and how different the vibe feels around cannabis. And when, yeah, when, you know, and I grew up on the East Coast and I, I lived on the West Coast and yeah, it was, just a, it was almost like a fresh breath of air. But now we're seeing that fresh breath of air kind of shift to the East Coast. And yeah, it's, it's awesome that you guys are focusing on cannabis culture as a staple in what you do every day. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of uh, multi-state operators that are in, in Maryland specifically. And uh, we really just kind of want to combat kind of that, that larger feeling of, you know, not not appreciating the plant or not really being there for what the what the plant is there for and we want to just you know represent the the plant and cannabis for really what we feel it's it's there for can you describe a little bit about kind of how the application process went here this is a limited license state can you maybe explain what that means a little bit yeah there was a there was a i think we in 2015 is when that process was going 2014 and 15 and uh I want to say there's about 150 applicants overall that was able to uh we we're only maryland was only awarding 15 cultivation licenses 15 processing licenses and 99 uh dispensary licenses and so you know if you do the math on that it was extremely competitive and it was all merit-based uh all uh you know lots of different uh groups from around the nation around the state really trying to uh to make their space but um yeah it's a bit of a golden ticket huh yeah out here definitely and so merit base means that essentially had to fill out different questions on the application that were pretty extensive and they were basically graded correct so it was like you were getting scored yeah so i think what makes maryland unique was that basically they graded us off of our internal sops so basically we presented them with you know seed to sale everything that we felt needed to happen in our facility to get that medicine out and after they took a look at everybody what they said they would do on a day-to-day -day basis and how they would get it there they you know looked at what our infrastructure was and realized that we we had we were talking a big game and able to to follow through. yeah you actually knew what we were talking about i imagine providing sops prior to having an operation is 
very difficult. So it seems like a lot of people that won licenses most likely had some previous experience or some people on their team that, you know, come from some other licensed states. Yeah. You know, uh, one of my good friends, Matt Bickle, Bickle Consulting, he was part of our team that helped us get our license here and really his knowledge in other states on a you know large scale and how to do things correctly was one of our biggest reasons that uh, you know we were able to, to do so well and really hit the ground running here so awesome and so now there's how many how many of those 15 licenses or I guess which licenses did you guys end up getting you clearly got cultivation so you were literally in the top 10 percent out of the people that tried which mm-hmm. is incredible um, but you also got manufacturing yeah, and we got the dispensary as well. So when the first licenses were awarded, we were one of four people to be vertically integrated to wow. begin with. I believe that number is probably six or seven by now, if not more. But um, to be, to begin with, we were one of the very few that was able to kind of control our destiny and grow, process, and distribute all of our own medicine in the way we felt the best. For someone who's not familiar with vertical integration, can you explain a little bit more about all the supply chain components to something like that? In Maryland, there's there's no distribution license, and so it's a little bit different than some other states, but basically uh, it just means that, yes, we're able to, to grow everything here in-house. If we need to extract anything, we can literally transfer it right through one door, next door into our lab, and then anything that is, you know, test passed, finished, and packaged, we're able to then send right to our dispensary, we also feed, you know, 90 of the 99 dispensaries in the state as well. So it's just a, a constant rotation of who, of where we're sending our medicine to. And you guys have a flagship dispensary in Baltimore as well. Yeah, we're right down on the on Key Highway, right down in Fed Hill. So right in the Inner Harbor. Uh, I would think it's you know it's the most beautiful area to have a dispensary in Baltimore. We're right on the water. You're looking, you know, right into the city. Uh, the Fed Hill has, you know, a really cool history and a really beautiful park that you can go up on top and kind of see the see the history there. So we feel lucky about what we were able to to get ourselves there too. Yeah, and can you, you know, speaking of really cool areas, the buildings that I've toured today are really cool and they have a rich history. Can you highlight or kind of paint the picture uh, for listeners a little bit on the infrastructure and maybe some of the history of the building prior to its current use? Yeah, so uh, the building that we are currently occupying is one of the four buildings that still stand of the Phillips Seafood Packing House. So basically there was, uh, I don't know how, lo- how many acres it took up, but there was 12,000 workers here, you know, in the early, early 1900s, I don't, until about 1970 is when it died. And so, you know, this was Bumblebee Tuna Factory. This was just massive fishing cannery basically. We have the second deepest port behind Baltimore and the state of Maryland. So we were able to, you know, to have this massive manufacturing uh, presence here. But then in the seventies, everything left, went to uh, Europe to start the canning over there, I guess. And basically Cambridge has been uh, not doing a whole lot on the uh, industry side until then. So basically we were able to come in find these awesome buildings that you know are still being used in various reasons and was there a pretty good amount of power available because of their previous use there was but at the same time we have not enough yeah we it's never enough and uh over the last five years you know we are constantly working with the city to help you know give us more power bring you know make it more more efficient for everybody as well but yeah there's no no such thing as enough power and when you guys landed at this location, a lot of that was driven by the fact that a lot of local municipalities essentially had uh, like a moratorium saying, no, we, you know, just because the state passed a law doesn't mean that the local municipality has to align with it. Yeah. And so they basically, a lot of places said no, but Cambridge said yes. Yeah, we approached multiple other towns before coming to Cambridge and every single one of those towns was not interested no matter what we could say about an economic impact or bringing jobs or you know anything nothing mattered because cannabis had such a bad connotation to it and we fully expected cambridge to kind of have that same idea but they understood that you know it's been 40 years that there's been nothing really new to come to town it's a town of 12,000 people and everybody wants a good opportunity here and there really wasn't 
anything to give them other than a couple other you know manufacturers and so they were more than willing to work with us and to help you know really bring more jobs to the town nice. and my understanding is is you're one of the lead employers in the town yeah we're the second largest in in town now um and you know as we keep on growing i know we'll be become number one there's more opportunity that colta can offer a lot of the people from cambridge than you know the hyatt or these other these other uh, other companies there's there's much more room for growth and for you know you're being educated every day at work and you know we're we're, we're growing the people just as much as we're growing the plants yeah amazing what I've learned over the years is, especially with growers, is like so, it seems like a lot of growers are relatively specialists. So like they're like, I'm, I'm an indoor grower, or I'm a greenhouse grower, or I'm an outdoor grower, and you guys actually do all three here. Yeah. So you know, personally, I'm an indoor grower coming from Denver and uh, and everything in b- before that. And uh, for the first two years, we only did indoor here. But 2019, we were able to start the first acre there, and so that's been you know, back to the education part and learning every day, getting to learn organic, large scale outdoor cultivation compared to, you know, single tier, double tiered, whatever system you want inside. It's a completely different monster. I I do think that the cultivators at Colta are probably a little more well-rounded. We keep our, our crews completely separate, you know, but at the same time, the knowledge is passed around everybody is part of the team when it comes to the harvest. So I do think that being a grower at Colta, you're exposed to literally every system that is you know, being used right now. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. And though you use on the outdoor stuff, you use all organic nutri- you know, amendments and, and soils, you're because of some of the legal regulations, you're not actually allowed to call it organic per se, but you guys have another certification? Yeah, federally, there's no organic certification for it, but- um, For cannabis in general. Exactly, but so it's basically it's the clean green certification. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, it's the program that you know somebody made because they knew that there was obviously organic cannabis being grown that would qualify for that under every other. Uh, I remember that program in California. I can't remember the gentleman's name. I thought it was like Chris Van Hook or something like that. But I remember that program, and it was nice to know that there was at least an organization or somebody that cared enough to start the movement in that direction. Yeah, well, I know a lot of you know people that are 10 or 20 years older than me that have been doing it in California for a long time and they've all said for years and years that organic sun-grown cannabis is no question the best and you know, in my experience being an indoor grower, I've always liked the indoor flower more, but seeing what we're able to produce under the sun out here and seeing the you know, knowing that it's organic, knowing it's grown under the sun, it really does bring something that we can't do inside. Do you notice like a depth of flavor? Is that one of the big kind of differentials? Yeah, that's the big thing that's standing out to me more each year. You know, I could be blindfolded in the middle of New Orleans and somebody would let me taste some of our flour that we grew in the, and I would know it immediately that just from the flavor that that was grown here. And, you know, it just really does I don't even, I've, I'm, because I'm a good flavor person and I'm trying to pull that flavor out as a descriptor and I really can't, but there's something in all of our strains that are grown under the sun organically that has this really just a full flavor. And so with being in Maryland, being on the coast, you know, obviously getting very much all four seasons, the greenhouse is kind of dormant and the outdoor is dormant during, you know, half of the year, three fourths of the year. I guess technically about half of the year. Prepping, I imagine, and stuff for season. Yeah, and you know, we're, we're testing right now soil temperatures for the beds inside of our crop protection, the Cravo, mm-hmm. to see if potentially we could, you know, maybe do another late season run for autoflower. You know, we're always kind of looking to see what else we can do to kind of push the limits. And Can we talk about the Cravo a little bit? That was kind of a new thing for me, which is really unique. But, you know, from a, if you're looking at it from a distance, you go, that's a greenhouse. But there's kind of some other stuff going on there. It's not quite a greenhouse. But can you explain that, the difference in that system? Yeah, I mean, it's basically, it's just a, a it's, it's a plain metal structure with three different layers of, of, uh, of fabric on it, you know, two different shade cloths and a full blackout curtain. 
and then it connects to our weather station so that it takes barometric pressures, it takes wind speeds, it knows um, leaf temperatures, soil temperatures, multiple different parameters that it'll take and then you tell it you know if it's over eight miles per hour from the south uh, that the wind's coming in then the south wall will close the other three walls will stay open and allow that airflow to go so it really just kind of it's like really fancy outdoor it is yeah and it, and it's really cool if you have if we have the same genetics in our full sun-grown fields and then the same genetics under cravo mm -hmm the the beauty of the flower on the protected side sure. it is obvious that you know protecting it from that 10 mile an hour plus wind or that you know if if maybe the sun is getting that hot that day that maybe it'll shade it a little bit and um so you might sacrifice a little bit of yield doing certain things like that you know shading it when it's too much sun or whatever but the beauty that comes from that is is next level. So it's essentially everything about a greenhouse except for either like a polycarbonate or a poly or a glass roof. Yeah, and there's no supplemental lighting either. Okay. That's another part that, you know, we could add if we wanted to. It's not that the Cravo doesn't accept uh, supplemental light. We just, we haven't done that. And then you guys are getting how many crops per year out of that setup? So under Cravo, we'll get two crops, basically. We'll get one acre of autoflower and one acre of full photo period. And then you, in addition to the Cravo kind of hybrid greenhouse, you also have just straight outdoor in raised beds. Yeah, so we'll have two acres spread over three different fields of raised beds, grassroots, fabric pots. You know, they're four years in now. The soil, the beds, everything is now, and it's, you know, gone through its fourth season of, uh, of cultivating and just getting better and better with, it, with each season. Oh. And then as far as product goes, is outdoor product earmarked for extraction? Is Cravo uh, economical flour? Or how does that all get broken down? So that's kind of the, you know, each season is gonna just environmentally, weather-wise, it's gonna offer us something different each year. And so the thing with indoor flour is we can plan for our product to go for as long as we want. You know, it's like, we know we're gonna harvest this whole next year, but with outdoor you know we've gone through two hurricanes we've gone through you know a, a drought uh, we've gone through five straight days of rain so we have an idea of where everything is going to go but you honestly kind of have to see how that season treats you before you can really decide is like is this an extraction year is this a flower year initially growing in the on the shore here we're two feet above you know above sea level 90% humidity, 80% humidity. We're in the 90s, you know, all summer. And so people thought when we were growing our first acre that we were absolutely crazy. And internally we said maybe 10% of this flour will be of the quality, you know, to be sold as flour. Um, we found out, you know, very quickly that these plants will thrive, uh, you know, in this environment, no question. And so we were pleasantly surprised with how well well, what's interesting when it doesn't have, you know, the big thing with a greenhouse is like the moment you, it's like almost putting plants in a Tupperware container and, you know, and then all of a sudden you've got all that humidity building up and depending on how tall the greenhouse structure is, it'll either hover on the crop and it becomes this, you know, really intense management of just moving air as much as you can. But because you guys have kind of eliminated that, that ceiling, so to speak, and you have all that fresh air exchange coming from all directions, unless, unless you have too much wind, then you can control that too it eliminates a lot of that um, humidity buildup, but I guess also if it's 90% humidity outside, then you're not going to escape it. It's just, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the Cravo was basically, it was, it was built to put and grow crops in extremely arid climates, really. So like Morocco, Mexico, Egypt, in these places that literally couldn't grow a crop mm -hmm. at all, you know, that can trap the humidity. So in a place that's extremely dry, then all of a sudden you want that to trap the humidity and it'll cut down your temperatures as well and so we're almost using the cravo as like an uh, almost opposite of 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 that because of uh, where we're located and it's like rich history with um, um shipping and fishing and boating i've always thought of like growers as kind of like captains of their boat and i've always thought of indoor facilities kind of like a barge or a yacht like you can make strategic changes and it's a little bit more controlled and i've always thought of greenhouses as like sailing a boat like a sailboat 
yeah. um, where you know you are like you said it depends on mother nature and what's happening outside and you're real time adjusting and doing things on the fly and you know it's i've always found that greenhouse growing it's interesting it's 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 simpler in some ways but it's also a lot more technical yeah. than indoor indoor yeah. cultivation yeah i mean you're not dealing with you know hvac in the same sense it's more of like the air movement in, right. in that but uh but yeah um i like the cravo in the way that you know it just you don't rely on as many systems you just rely on direction and yeah it's got a purist kind of component to it so shifting gears to the indoor building that we're in now and, and you've got multiple indoor buildings correct yeah so we have two phases of indoor growth in our main building and then we also have uh it's basically it's our supports our support building to grow and veg everything for outdoor okay but just as you said the cravos empty for six months rather than that stay empty we utilize that as being a veg and a flower room too so sense. so there's a seasonality to one of the buildings as well and it kind of shifts yeah. you got a lot of moving parts and pieces here yeah and it's just uh it's kind of like the nose to tail thing we want to use everything make sure nothing's sitting there for too long uh just keep keep everything functioning sounds like a really lean kind of mentality it's great what's the square footage on the building that we're in currently so the building that we're in right now is 36,000 square feet okay. and total canopy, not just in this building, uh, also the building that we were just talking about, total we have 20,000 square feet of canopy. So um, 6,000 square feet over there, so about 14,000 square feet in this 36,000 square foot building. And when you say canopy, is that flowering canopy or total canopy? That, that's total canopy. I, you know, 70% of that would be flower, sure. I think, ish. I know a lot of people who will be listening to podcasts can't see, but we're actually, we're in your office and you have a pretty incredible window in your office, but it doesn't lead to the outside, but it leads into one of your multi-tiered LED flower rooms, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, uh, this definitely is the best window, the best view I could have asked for in, a, in an office. And so uh, definitely one of the perks, but it's cool. Um, you can kind of get an angle in here that you can't get in the room too so we'll have our growers come up and kind of just take a look and verify that they're trellising correctly or that their canopies you know being controlled in the right way so it also kind of has a function yeah it's a unique perspective so as far as the flowering rooms go in here you have uh, kind of a hybrid thing going on right you have a few hps flowering rooms and then you have a couple and those are single tier and then you also have the uh, pit horticulture, um, double stacks here, and it looks like Fluence LEDs, and I think you're running train HVAC on this particular side. Yeah, so in 2016, when we were making the initial investment for phase one, uh, you know, the LEDs, at that time, people said that you don't flower under LED, you're only supposed to veg under yeah. LED, and, and so when we we're weighing that investment, it was just safer to us to say, okay, Go let's go with HPS it's proven um, and we'll wait and kind of see how this goes you know before I came here I had already been doing um, double tiered LED you know with fluence and do, doing studies with them so I knew that that was the future but the industry as a whole just it really took yeah. I'd say until about 2018 or 19 that it started being widely accepted and still you know I think there's still people that don't believe the LED uh, um, phenomenon but but yeah we have the hps rooms because that was the safe bet um, in 2016 and we still like using them honestly there's certain strains that you know obviously with double tiered you don't have as much vertical height so we're able to get some of our stretchier genetics there and there's also you know we're not 100 percent if it's a spectrum thing or what but there's a couple strains that just perform better under the hps uh very few, but the ones that do perform better under HPS do do much better. Uh, what's like the square foot of a flower room here? Are they all the same size? Uh, they vary. Next door, we're about 1,500 square feet of canopy in each one. Um, and in here, we're just over 2,000. So not big differences, but, mm -hmm. but yeah. Enough with plant production scheduling to make sure you're paying attention. Yeah, I mean, we basically have this, the facility broken into two halves. Um, so it really does help the product, like the planning side of it. So we, you know, the planning we keep separate and then we then combine them to kind of polyrhythm it. So it's basically we're harvesting every three weeks next door, harvesting every three weeks here, 
but you combine them so we're basically it's every 10 11 days nine to 11 days yeah what is about the average um is there like a maximum that you'll flower in terms of uh, maturation time like is it's something that you guys do a lot of stuff from seed originally which we'll talk about in a minute but if you have something that's a winner in your eyes where, what's the cutoff date? It can be no longer than X amount of weeks in flower? Yeah, so kind of back to like our six flower rooms, or really it's the three flower rooms. So planning wise, we do everything on a nine week, mm-hmm. uh, nine week cycle. I think that's pretty standard. In my experience, most strains are already around that 63. You'll have your ones that are you know done in your mid 50s, uh, some that want to go forever. But I'd say at this point, especially with the genetics being, you know, being so being crossed so often that it's. I think flowering times are just really starting to, yeah, to a to a point. But the nine week flower cycle and being able to do all of our stage moves every three weeks just makes the planning seamless. It's interesting because there's a few things that you know want to go ten, and it's just it seems like from a commercial viability and financial standpoint, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And then the end users. Uh, or end medical patients in this case they're really not willing to pay more for something that needs to be flowered longer so that is probably the biggest issue right there is that yeah you could spend two extra weeks three extra weeks flowering a strain or doing you know putting in the extra work to make to bring something to the market that literally nobody else has but that value isn't seen um with everybody but you know there there are certain people that really appreciate that but not enough that it makes it viable as we keep on getting flower rooms and and, you know building more out i am trying to figure out a way that we can you know maybe dedicate one to being a 10 week you know or maybe even 11 if we get some crazy but like i would love to be able to bring that stuff to the market you know in a in a responsible way and and also keep production going obviously but um that's really the biggest missing piece is, yeah, some of those late flowering sativas, I think. And in the single-tiered flower, uh, HPS flower rooms, you've got GGS benches, is that what's in there? Yeah. Yeah. GGS rolling tables. Yeah, it's actually a PIP uh, subsidiary company yeah. as of this past year. Um, so we were really happy to welcome them kind of into the PIP family. Typically, about how much percentage of canopy are you getting on that room, do you know, roughly, compared to the square footage space? You like how I asked you? I'd say 50, 50, 50, just over 50. 50%? Yeah, you know, because we like to keep good good aisles. You know, the room itself is just under 3,000. And Are they, uh, I'm sorry, are they a mobile? Are they rolling benches or are they fixed leg? Yeah, they're, mo- they're mobile. They roll side to side. It's, you know, that as basic of a system as those GGS tables are, they're phenomenal. So yeah. uh, they, they serve a great point. So you're probably 750, 800 square feet of canopy, something like that in that space? Yeah. Okay. And then in the uh, multi-tiered room, the rooms are, you said, 2,000 square feet? Or no, 1,000 square feet. Yeah, they're, I think they're about 12,000 or 1,200 square feet. Um, and then, yeah, we're at 2,048 square feet of canopy in each room. So. so that's what's interesting about going vertical is maximizing cubic footprint. Because I've got, you know, I'm, I'm not against single-tiered HPS growing. I've seen some really incredible things. I've been there myself. But when you start to run the numbers, even if you're getting bigger numbers in terms of grams per square foot out of your single tier, when you look at the multi-tiered and being able to create space that physically didn't exist, even if the yields are slightly less, let's say, in the end, when you look at the total, HPS can't come, doesn't even come close. Are you seeing that here as well or? Yes, I mean, um, so, you know, these rooms that we're looking back here, they've now been functioning for over two years and, you know, kind of back to that daily education and growing is we've been getting better those two years as well. And so in the beginning, yeah, we weren't seeing exactly this grams per square foot aligning, you know, some strains would, some wouldn't. Uh, At this point now that we've really got our crew dialed and the facility dialed and, you know, the genetics and the nutrient, everything really you know, homogenized, uh, we're now seeing better results on the square footage basis out of these LED rooms too. So oh, really? Yeah. Nice. Um, so not, yeah. So once you can kind of really dial in all of those things, uh, the LED double stack, you're, I don't think you're going to be sacrificing anything for that. It's interesting. It's also interesting how 
you know, people who are in a new emerging state doing a startup and they're like, all right, I've got a flagship facility. I've purchased the best in class equipment. Uh, I think I've got the one of the best teams or at least really strong leadership and we're going to hire people up. You know, it's not always a recipe for success right away. You know, new environment, new team, commission building, train people, learn how to communicate as a cohesive group. It takes some time to dial things in. Sometimes when I look at some of these uh, lofty financial performas for investors and things on other projects, um, you know, it's like they just think they're going to get to this like we're crushing it on our first harvest and then we're just going to hockey stick from there. But yeah. really, it's a little bit of a, a crawl before you can kind of run thing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, our you know, our indoor team at this point, every single person has been here for over a year and that amount of time to come in every day and get better and better and better, that's really starting to show. Um, you know, a couple of years ago during the kind of the COVID craziness, there was, you know, turnover in every industry um, all over the place. And so that was also right when we were expanding. And so new systems, training new employees on, on a regular basis, that's hard to really, to really bring it all together and, you know, trust everybody to go out, do everything that they should do, come back, it's been done. And uh, at this point now that, you know, everybody's been here, you know, 13, 14, 15 months at least, it's just a night and day difference on, you know, so, yeah, they, they come in and they're as good as any grower could be, you know, at this point. And so it's a, that just makes the, makes every difference there. So even though you guys, I, I think if you, you know, if you're listening, you're like, oh, 20,000 square feet canopy indoor, three acres outdoor, you sound like a big, big company. But the reality is, is you guys are a small, almost, you guys almost have that kind of family feel here. You're not a multi-state operator. You're in a, and there's actually a, a, as I was talking to people here and I was asking where they're from, you've got a ton of Maryland natives here, but you guys are by all means a small business. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, because uh, I even am somewhat blinded sometimes in you know, thinking that we're, we're large, but then yeah, going and touring a couple of our other, of the other grows that are here in the state, seeing numbers you know and seeing sales numbers and stuff uh it's kind of humbling to know that yeah no matter how good or big we think we are we're we're really yeah in the grand scheme we're kind of a smaller middle ground uh company but that also just allows us to really focus on what matters and you know we're not taking on everything under the sun we're really trying to focus on what what we do best let's talk about that because Quality is something that everybody talks about, but now it's really becoming a forefront because in these new states, you can almost grow anything in the first year and it'll sell. But then the evolving consumer, medical patient, um, they start to get a refined palate or they start to experience elevated cannabis and then they say, wait a minute, this I'm paying the same amount for this stuff as I'm paying for this other stuff from this other group. And uh, but this is so much better. And once you kind of realize that you've been kind of consuming, uh, like I don't know, Bammer for lack of better words, yeah. and then you kind of have this awakening moment of aha, there's really no going back to the previous type. So um, you guys have been recognized for several awards that I can't remember now, but I remember uh, Grower of the Year. Yeah, we just got the uh, Explore Maryland. They just released the awards last week. We got the Grower of the Year. We got the CBD product of the year for our strain, the mango, um, which is a great, great, pretty much like a one-to-one -one, um, CBD THC strain. And then uh, what we're most proud about is the workplace of the year in the cannabis industry. So um, being grower of the year is awesome, having product of the year is awesome, but being recognized as you know where the employees in Maryland would much rather be, um, that makes that makes us as proud as, as anything. That's uh, that's the best, just when you know you're doing it right. And I mean, even myself as an ex-owner operator in the space, I was admiring some people that were doing some defoliation over here. And there was maybe four people on the Elevate platform system just working. Three out of the four people, they were smiling. Yeah. They were they were they were smiling while they were working diligently. They weren't goofing off and making jokes. They were, but they I could physically see that they were smiling. And I was thinking, that's what you want to see. You know, like happy people, happy plants. Yeah, for sure. And that's also, I always like to say like wintertime too, uh, you know, outside here in Maryland, at least there's, you can go weeks on end with not seeing much sun, cold wind. And uh, so it's also just kind of that seasonal, 
boost that that helps everybody. I've, you know, that's one of the best parts of growing is being able to come inside in the winter time and you're you're in San Diego. Tropical oasis. Yeah. I remember from our early days in Colorado, I would go into a grow. Sometimes I rode my bicycle because Colorado's kind of has that crazy weather thing going on and then you'd be indoors and you can't see outdoors of course and then you'd be going to go leave for the day and there'd be like a foot of snow on the ground yeah yeah it's an escape from reality for no sure. totally um i think it's something that uh, isn't talked about enough but it's um i don't know how much value that adds to a job but it seems pretty significant in my eyes where you can wear a t-shirt and have a sweat going and stuff like that i also noticed that you know everyone here is really on task um sometimes yeah. i'll go into a facility and because there's cameras or new people people kind of stop working and they start looking and they start asking questions and everybody was just really on task and that speaks really loudly to kind of your leadership style and and kind of the expectations that have been set with your employees so yeah and you know and uh it's also we we're lucky to have uh you know a few partners that have come through and and helped kind of shine a spotlight you know on colta before and so uh it's also our, our cultivators are used to kind of working within those those realms and, and knowing that it's part of a bigger picture and, uh, you know, it's, they're not starstruck and it's just it's another day at work. Now, on another award that you guys got that is actually quite unique, you don't hear about it enough, is the RMI Award? Yeah, the Re- Regional Manufacturing Institute of Maryland. So they're basically the large manufacturing association of the state. and. Uh, they recognized us for energy consumption and so basically uh as we know you know the industry is a, a hog a massive hog on the uh the infrastructure and so it was another validating thing for us to to know that the state recognized us on you know kind of leading the way for energy consumption and learning more about what we can do to to help that yeah, it's great that it's a focus. And you guys also did something really interesting with, uh, was it Dartmouth? Yeah, we had uh, some students and a professor come out from Dartmouth uh, this year. Basically, they have a whole course that's on radical facility redesign. And, um, you know, I think in Massachusetts, the industry takes up 1% of the power grid already. Um, it's probably that way, you know, around in, in many states. Yeah, so when you think about one industry taking up one percent of the entire grid it is pretty eye-opening and so their whole mission is to to learn to figure out these different ways of you know what have we always been doing here just because that's what you've always been doing and what can we change in a way that would really help our our consumption so we're going to look at metering you know every single thing in a room that is consuming power your your hvac your lights your fans you know every single thing there um and then breaking that down over one harvest and then seeing uh it, the new metric that they want to start looking at is uh grams per kilowatt hour so basically how efficient was your facility in creating that biomass um, which i think is a really interesting new way to kind of look at it that yeah. is never really been thought about from at least our you know the grower side oh, i think that's great Let's shift gears a little bit into kind of how you got like genetics. And I remember Bickle from some previous projects and we met out at Photo X um, in San Diego years ago. But uh, I do see the consistent theme of starting with a lot of seeds. So, yeah. So, you know, we've 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 always your at least Matt's thought is if you're going to be creating a, a new facility in a new state that your only way to really get out ahead and make a clean facility with it, with your own genetics you know is is knowing good breeders getting building relationships with, relationships with them and trying to to bring in things that are unique to you sure um, so yeah we started out uh, you know in 20, 2018 we had probably 70 strains pop from seed to start with out of the gate and as that it took us about a year to really whittle through all of that um, obviously we're trying to do our pheno hunting quick and narrow down but that big of a hunt kind of takes a minute well it's 70 times x yeah. right so yeah. it's probably a few thousand beans or something exactly and so um and that's a few thousand seeds that you have to individually track and metric and all that stuff and yep. individually and test. physically 
track and hold. I mean, I don't think a lot of people understand what a daunting organizational task something like that is. If you really are to break down the things that we do on a yearly basis or anytime we do a big seed pop and a pheno track, a pheno hunt of that, that's one of the most daunting and most important because one mislabeled pheno, your all that work is gone, you know, and so uh, being being thorough on that is, is huge and uh, actually this year was the first year that we were able to capture every single phenotype and get it into our tissue culture lab. So the redundancy we had and the the safety net of knowing that every single phenotype that was in that facility or in our fields we were able to go right back find any single one of those winners we can bring right back out when we need so for someone who maybe doesn't understand um, or as new that pheno hunting is a new word to them can you kind of describe what a pheno hunt kind of consists of and means yeah so i mean uh the way i kind of look at it is you know if you pop a pack of seeds uh a pack of regular seeds you're going to have some brothers and sisters um some of them might be the milkman's you know kid that you don't know how that expression got in there and the others are identical and so it's really just growing all of them out um you know here in maryland it, it or really i guess in any production facility it doesn't matter if you think it's good that's one of the biggest lessons that i've learned is you know back in the past you'd pop a seed and if it was awesome you're so excited and you're going to keep growing that but being good is one thing um, it still needs to be production worthy it still needs to be vigorous it still needs to you know veg in a certain time if you have you know some of those old like hash plants or bubba cushes that they're, they're the slowest growers ever mm -hmm. and you just want to scream at them to grow <laughs> faster so those you know you can't anything with a slow edge really is kind of back to like the 13 week sativas it's kind of also can take it it out um do you see a correlation with slow veg fast flower have you noticed that at all i guess in the past i have uh yeah i guess i have yeah it's a weird one yeah yeah they yeah they can get done in like if you're really crops during like seven weeks kind of thing and the other thing too about like fast finishing plants it seems really attractive but in a commercial facility when you have production and all of a sudden half the room is ready a week or two early it's really not a benefit unless you have a dedicated room for seven weekers eight weekers nine weekers or dedicated cure rooms that you can fill as well but they tend to bottleneck and, and yeah. create unnecessary challenges so sometimes when people are like oh i got this really fast flowering cultivar i'm like well that's really cool for you maybe but like commercially unless there's a dedicated room or flow for it it tends to create more negatives and benefits unfortunately yeah yeah so i mean back to that nine week that 63 day sweet spot that's kind of really what what helps us out the most so when you're looking for what a lot of people will call a keeper or um a selected phenotype that quote unquote checks all the boxes what are those boxes and what I would call, what are those traits that you're looking for in a cultivar? You mentioned some of them. But. Yeah, well, so like personally, I've always grown for flavor in Colorado and ever since, uh, if it didn't taste good, it didn't matter to me. And so personally, that's what I look for. And so, you know, weed should taste good. So that's what we've always said. It's what we've always lived by. Um, so my personal number one would be flavor, um, but taking my grower hat off and putting the Colta hat on, it is, you know, production viability. Um, and if it's resistant to, you know, powdery mildew, botrytis, any other of the multitude of things that could, could hit you. So unfortunately, the other one is, is potency. Potency is a driving force, I think, in many markets right now. Um, every market, every state I go to, every country, it is, that is what is driving sales. Yes. Yeah, right or wrong. Um, you know, that's another unfortunate part is we've found very many phenotypes of amazing genetics that, you know, didn't test a, uh, above a certain amount of THC and therefore just really wasn't coveted in the market. And so not only is it difficult to find keepers uh, that you want to, you know, keep in your production facility forever, we've had to get rid of certain ones that checked every box except you know, it could have had three or 4% more potency or 7% more potency or whatever it is. And you know, that, 
that's the saddest part I would say of the of a pheno hunt is going through all that work to find a strain that like low. 23 or 22 yeah, percent what I always say is like you know I always pay attention to my growers like if we have a new strain and you walk in and they're all around it and all smelling it and all talking about it in the hallways you hear you like that's how you start to know it's like okay the guava lava that one is going to be the next one or like this you know i smelled that one earlier it had a lot of layers of flavor um it's interesting how good cannabis is just no longer almost acceptable by the general public and it has to be like great or phenomenal cannabis from their eyes the sad thing is is i mean you've had stuff to test as did i hear 40 percent earlier uh, 39.8 total, uh, THCA. The total can cannabinoids was 44.6, I think, for the Amnesia OG. So, ah, uh, Amnesia. Yeah, I mean, we were the first people to hit the 40 number in, in Maryland. Outrageous. Yeah, I mean, I didn't think it was. I, so I went to the Cannabis Cup in 2003, and the strain that won that year was the Hawaiian Snow, and it had tested at 23%, and everybody, the entire city was screaming that it was fake. That was uh, 2003 in Amsterdam, yeah. original. Yeah, yeah, the, the High Times Cannabis Cup. And so in 19 years, it's gone from, you know, 23% is fake. There's no way that's physically possible. 19 years and we basically doubled the THC potential in, the, in cannabis. So that's as fast as, fast as uh, you know, of an evolution as you can get. You know, the same story is true on the CBD side. So at one point, because a lot of the operators didn't have access to lab testing, and you know, the only way you tested stuff back in the day was you smoked it. And you were like, yep, that's a, that's a strong one. Or like, oh, oh, that's weak. And I remember in my earlier days, we, we were some of the first people in the country in, in Colorado along with you to have access to lab testing. And it was really exciting. But before that, yeah, we would use our, our nose and our lungs and how we felt. And as you know, cannabis is such a unique experience for each individual that just because I feel this way, it could totally affect you totally differently. Uh, so something like that kind of happened with CBD uh, nationally. So when we first started access to third-party independent lab testing like you have here in Maryland, you know, we were like sort of looking at these, we, the ones that we were going to throw away, we we're like, oh, it's not a keeper. Yeah. We got it tested and we're like, oh, it has an elevated CBD content. Yeah. Huh, that's interesting. But prior to that, if you think about breeding traditionally, breeders were basically driven by growing things that were in high demand from their clients wherever they may have been located back in the day. And if you put out a product that didn't get you high technically, the grower is going to get feedback on that. That like, hey, like that sucks. Like I don't want any more of that. Yeah. So, my theory on the whole thing is, is because there wasn't access to third-party independent lab testing, um, a lot of the original breeders, when they would come across something that was CBD rich or a one-to-one, like your award-winning mango, they didn't grow it anymore. So because it went over their heads, it was non-detectable, I guess. So we almost like basically the breeders almost accidentally bred CBD completely out of cultivars. And then through discovery of certain things and um, like the cherry was kind of like one of the staples for CBD in Colorado that then was a backbone for cherry wine and all this other stuff. And I think that original work was done by out of Holland from uh, the CBD crew. They had something called a Z6 or Z7 or something like that. But the same thing almost happened is now happening again where now THC is is the name of the game, and it's every it's every state. It's not just Maryland, yeah. and so now the breeders' focus is kind of shifting that direction, and we are seeing what I'll call extreme THC levels north of 35 percent, and it's like a whole different kind of cannabis compared to maybe when your parents were, you know, in college or something oh, yeah. like that. Yeah, without a doubt, it's uh, not even in the same same realm. For people that are maybe new to Maryland or maybe just got their medical card, um, what are some of the strains that Colta is really proud of and would encourage people to kind of make sure you try this kind of thing? Uh, you know, f- almost five years in, the two strains that we have uh, been growing the longest and that we're most proud of and most well-known for, I would say, uh, for the, the, the full time of Colta would be the Dosido 2222 and the Poochie Love. Um, you know, both two very, very different genetics. Both of them are bred by Archive Seed Bank. 
Um, Shout out to Fletcher. Yeah, Fletcher is definitely one of the heroes. Um, but the Dosido -Do 22, I would say, for at least the first few years, was the most talked about strain, no question, in, in the state. Um, was always put up there with the best of the best. And, and nobody has your genetics except for you in the state of Maryland. Yeah, and that that's kind of another uh, part, like of the you know the limited licensing and stuff. Uh, for the first few years, no grows shared genetics. There was there, you know, not that we were sharing them, but nobody had the same genetic. Everybody that was offering something was the only grow to do that. And in the last couple of years, there's been a couple of strains that have come and gone into other grows, you know, and now we're we're able to prove that you know, maybe we do grow this strain better than that person. You know, there, there was sure. never, there was never a comparison in the state to say like, oh, what? Who's the best grower? It actually is growing this better. Um, so just as genetics kind of mature and more people are kind of, you know, bringing in certain things to their portfolio, that is kind of the cool thing that we're able to, to, to prove is, you know, yeah. but, uh, but at the same time, I would say primarily most, most grows are working with their own genetics. I agree with that though. Same genetics, different conditions, different approaches, who grows it the best? Yeah. You know, in terms of visual appeal, nose and yeah, total cannabinoids. Yeah. And so uh, that's that's something that Maryland's the the patients here finally kind of have their choice between uh, the companies and I think it's the same in every state, but in Maryland people are big big fans of certain companies for certain reasons and really don't like certain brands for certain reasons you know whatever that may be and uh this will hope like being able to offer different genetics or the same genetics that other people will have that they're fans of you know maybe that can get them out of their their comfort zone and say like oh you know what maybe that company isn't as bad for whatever reason i thought you know and um and you know they're actually growing amazing genetics and, and amazing medicine so it's guys. It's nice to have some competition that's doing different stuff. But I, I do appreciate when there's, you know, like yeah, let's see who's 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 really putting this out at the highest level. How much insight and involvement did you have in like equipment selection? Uh, so you know, a lot of that, the selection is done, you know, with Bickle, Matt Bickle, Luke Batten, Bickle Consulting. Um, but you know, it's really it's 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 me them our our ceo we kind of get together you know we've had a lot of experience with different different facilities different uh technologies and equipment and so that's another good thing about bickle being involved in multiple states is you know they're learning they're learning lessons you know at an even more rapid rate than we are at certain things and so we're able to use that relationship to to kind of gain knowledge as well yeah i think that's great what are some of the key characteristics or traits that they look for when selecting an equipment vendor? I mean, you know, obviously the, the, it's a good product. It functions in the way it should, but really what we're finding uh, after years and years and years, it's really about the relationship building and the, the having our back, you know, when if anything is to go wrong, that's really what we found creates that solid relationship um, no matter what. Um, and so obviously, like I said, it's got to be a great product, but if you back it up and are, are you, you have a good word and you're, you're there for us, we'll, we'll keep moving that way. I'm completely in alignment there. It's like, I expect your product to do what you claim it does. But like when I have a problem, I don't want it to be crickets. You know, there's a lot of new companies that come into the cannabis space and they kind of have this mentality of like, we're going to global dominate or take over and they learn really quickly that this industry is a bit challenging um, operators get delayed for all kinds of different reasons sometimes hvac or racking or lighting you know and they're like yeah we're going to order it in june and then they come up with a bunch of um, bumps in the road with local municipalities or not enough power in a lot of cases and delay 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 and all of a sudden they realize that a, a sales cycle on a piece of equipment could be a year or two and a lot of people aren't used to that from other industries in terms of like equipment sales and things like that so um yeah and for me I, I agree it's like when i have a problem and i make that phone call i'm just expecting you to remedy it as fast as you possibly can um and then i'm hoping that you are a well-established company because 
um, the equipment vendors, they seem to have a symbiotic relationship with the industry and the industry's gone through ebbs and flows, so to speak, you know, and booms and, and then, and then uh, furrows as well. And so, yeah, you know, I remember there was a lot of lighting companies initially that I thought were really big players and some of them aren't around anymore. I mean, there's multiple, yeah, just uh, Gavitas at least getting out of the double-ended bulb, uh, you know, Lux, obviously they went down. There's a lot of companies that are putting out really crazy claims to... Um, I'm trying to think, Illumitech, do you remember Illumitech? Yeah, yeah. I have a grow uh, that my friend runs and, you know, they were on their phase two and they went to go, they're like, all right, we need lights. And it's like, that company doesn't even exist. Yeah. Or, you know, you have a failure on, it's, it's a, you know, things fail whether it's racking or fans or lighting, like there's gonna be things that break, but when that time comes, you don't think about this in other industries, but in our industry, you have to be like, are they still a company? Um, especially with everything that's going on with the you know, supply chain and the economy in the last few years, it's really weaned out a lot of people that didn't have um, financial stability underneath them. Yeah, and that's also something I can kind of tell after working with a company or talking to people if they, you know, really got their stuff in a in a in a row the way that they act like they do you know just sending emails back and forth you can kind of gauge a company's professionalism that way too and so sure. a lot of people kind of show if they're even worthy of moving forward with before you even you know get get too deep into them when you guys first elected for the pit horticulture system uh, racking and trays the let's see it was what you guys started talking to us in 2017 that's when we first started so we we put up our first kind of the proof of concept rack system in 2019 okay. uh, next door in our the one kind of open space we had in veg so you know coming from colorado where i had done and worked on them before i knew that that was going to be the move but we kind of needed to prove it and so that was the first very mini system but then in 2020 uh that's when this side of the facility was, uh, you know, constructed and... And in 2020, we did not have our Elevate platform catwalk system out then. Yeah. So how were you guys accessing the second tier at that time? The main way we would do it is with uh, picker lifts, like a, a single person lift that would go in, you know, it's a, it's not a large system, but it's... It's really for picking boxes off of... Yeah, at Amazon. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so... It fits perfectly within the rows. It allows us to get up and down very easily, but it's bulky. You know, it's a heavy piece of equipment that, you know, you need to be safe on. Whereas the Elevate is as easy of a, of a system to, you know, to put in and install, to move around. But, you know, as you saw earlier, we've had, we had nine different people, I think, on one rack, yeah, uh, five and four, you know, on, on each side. And so, that was the other problem with the, the the lifts is they were so wide that you could only work one aisle at a time. So so a slow productivity in terms of and then they're so large they cover those those aisles that you could only have one in front and one in back and if the person behind you need to leave you know so there's so many different reasons why that's not a, a viable system. Um, so yeah, for the first year and you know obviously we have the moving stair ladders too, but that's good for one person and you gotta. They're, they're bulky, the turns and, you know, your main aisle have to be wide enough where you can't even make the turn in. That's kind of, I, I just got started on some of those and I was like, yeah, this like is okay, but it's the amount of up and down too is a little bit rough. Well, then you're kind of like standing sideways on the stair and leaning over. There's yeah. really not a way to comfortably do it. I mean, growing, if you're a grower, you are used to being in weird, <laughs> yes. uh, you know, weird shapes and weird positions, yeah. but still. Anything we can do to keep our, you know, growers out of those weird positions, we will. And the Elevate's done a huge, been a huge boost with that. Nice. I mean, even in the short time we were here, there was a bunch of people loaded up behind us and they've completed their tasks and they're gone. Yeah. Um, which is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they've gone through and defoliated, uh, maybe not the whole top, but looks like at least half for the day and knock the refs out tomorrow. Yeah. Awesome. Yep. What does the future look like for Colta? What's what's next? You guys, we didn't talk about tissue culture, so I got to come back to that too. Um, well, the referendum for recreational use just passed here, um, and so we're kind of sitting here, very patiently waiting for all of the, you know, regulations to get presented to us. We have an idea on what to expect, but 
we are not 100%, and so uh, we're really hoping that July 1st of 2023 is the first day. That's when the referendum comes into effect, but we're hoping that that's also the first day of recreational sales. Um, is that just a separate metric tag that they're going to do for you? Are they going to allow you to transfer over med pro product? I believe they're going to transfer it over. Um, from my understanding, it's going to be different than Colorado or other states that use metric where, um, you know, you have your blue tag and your yellow tag and you have your separate points of sales and you have, it's a, it's almost a completely separate area in your, in your store. Uh, to my understanding, and like I said, we still have a lot to go, that the, the, the only difference will really be at the point of sale at the at the register if you're a medical patient you know you're gonna get your you'll pay your medical prices if you're a recreational patient you you'll pay your your taxes you know in maryland they don't tax medicine nice. so nice. that's where the the big difference will be there i know uh, like every recreational it'll be large large tax increase are they talking about different caps on edible milligram strength on med medical versus adult use or recreational? Those specifics are definitely being talked about and we're patiently waiting, you know, um, canopy restrictions, they're kind of figuring that out on, you know, what percentage increase from an existing space you can go, you know, coming from Colorado, the, the edible milligram size has always been a massive, uh, you know, point of concern and so, that I'm sure will be part of the whole the whole deal. Um, you know, we're still a 10 milligram, 10 piece, or yeah, 100 milligram yeah, total. Pretty, yeah, that's pretty, pretty typical. Pretty typical. There's there's a uh, I think one producer here that can produce stronger than that, but hmm. it's we're pretty we're pretty standard I think yeah. with with everybody after the the lessons learned in other states. Well, it's tough too because on the medical side, like certain people with edibles, like 100 milligrams for me, I'll sleep for a day and a half. I'm like a 20 to 30 milligram kind of person functionally. But, you know, I know other people, it's like they'll eat 100 milligrams and like be like, yeah, I kind of feel it. And I'm like, you know. Yeah. You know those guys? I, don't eat, I don't eat edibles too often because of that, you know. It's, uh, it's not, well, it's not cost effective as a medicine yeah. if you have to ingest a, a bar of chocolate that costs I don't know, 27, 30 bucks. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I, I do like the edibles for the sleep um, aspect for sure, but with my, uh, my metabolism and my, the way that my body chemistry goes, I'm just not, a, I'm not the target edible right. user. Right, yeah. But I think what Colorado is a thousand milligrams on the edible side and the medical side? Medically, I believe so, yeah. And it's like, and it's priced reasonably too. You're like, oh, okay, that's only $40. Yeah, when I was first managing the stores in Denver, you know, we were able to sell a 100 milligram chunk of chocolate that big. Yeah, yeah. And that was when the lessons were learned. The old Chiba Chews and yeah. Blue Kadoos and all yeah. that stuff. And the Mary's Medicinals and all the, um, the, the baked goods. But then, you know, instead of having one cookie, you had to have 10 mini cookies in there. And right. so that's that same dosage I think is now going to be just regular. I think it's something that MSOs probably really struggle with is it's like, okay, great. You have all these operations, all these states, but you can't exactly standardize everything because the local municipality, the states, they may have different, um, I don't call it hoops to jump through, but they may have different regulations that modify and adjust your workflow based on um, compliance. Yeah. yeah, I mean, compliance, we live and die by compliance here, obviously. I mean, that's what we say. We're, we're a weed company, but we're basically a compliance company. Without being compliant, we're, we're not going to grow sure. a plant. And so, yeah, that's kind of just the, you got to kind of look at everything from, from that view. Something that I read about you guys that I really liked, it resonated really well with me. It was something like, if we won't smoke it, we don't want to put it out there or something like that. Yeah, yeah. We won't put anything out there that we wouldn't smoke ourselves, you know. Um, that's, I would hope that's a... It sounds like a logical and simple thing, but as you know already, there's many people that work at dispensaries who will go to a different dispensary to buy their product. And I go, but well, don't you work at a dispensary? And they go, yeah, but I don't like our product or I won't smoke our product. I it's like a Wendy's, you know burger guy going to mcdonald's you know it's like oh. yeah yeah so you know the first thing i want to say is thank you you guys have been really gracious with your time i've learned a lot it's been a pleasure to see how ambitious you guys were with some of your ideas but most importantly there's a lot of ambitious people out there but your collective team's ability to execute um, and then to be able to tie in a really strong culture 
you know, we talk about cannabis culture as like a legacy type thing coming into the fold, but the collectiveness that I see both in the legacy market and in the legal market around culture is respect for the plant and the people around the plant. And you guys have done an incredible job uh, on both of those. So just want to hats off to you guys. Thanks. I appreciate it. And definitely that's uh, good that, you know, the, the hard work is, is showing itself and that the smiles on the growers and the, the you know, the, the energy that we exude is, is noticeable. So if you could give one message to a, let's say a listener that maybe is an existing grower or maybe an aspiring grower, maybe even a home grower or not a grower at all. Um, what would that message be in terms of kind of what success looks like in the cannabis space? Essentially, what does it take to be successful in the license and legal and compliant cannabis space? Yeah, I mean, I would say no matter what size, you know, what if you're in your if you're in a closet or in a facility ten times the size, education is key. Uh, you know, I've been doing this for eighteen years now at this point, and every single day I'm learning something new. So never stop trying to get better for one and uh just it's not easy uh you know what we've been doing here in the five years it's not it's not an easy uh task to accomplish and so don't get you know don't get discouraged stick to the path know that you know you're here for a reason and your hard work will pay off and uh get with the program dig in learn it and good things will come I really appreciate your time. I look forward to coming back when adult use is here so I can try some of these beautiful flowers, but it was it was great to appreciate them uh, visually. And um, yeah, we look forward to the next time we connect. Awesome. All right, brother. Thanks for listening to Cultivation Elevated. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at pithorticulture.com forward slash podcast. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash cultivation elevated. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.